This is an ABC podcast. The urge to beautify ourselves seems to be something in the order of a fundamental human desire. There's certainly nothing new about it. What is new is the range of technologies available to us, not just for self-beautification, but for self-scrutiny, self-advertisement, and of course, the surveillance and judgment of other people and the way that they look. It's not something that philosophy has traditionally had a lot to say about, but this week, we're blowing the whistle. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to the program. Heather Widows is Professor of Global Ethics at the University of Birmingham in the UK. She's also the author of Perfect Me, Beauty as an Ethical Ideal. And Heather Widows is speaking with Laura D'Olimpio. Global Ideal, thin, firm, smooth and young is absolutely obvious as you track the research. And they're ethical norms in the sense that they're a value framework. Increasingly, people see their bodies as their selves and they map their lives and their goals, short-term goals and long-term goals around improving the body. So a better body is a better self. So you've already got a clue there that it's ethical because it's about being better. These are already value-laden words. And you can see how the ethics plays out if you think about how we structure our daily lives. So, you know, we go to the gym, we diet, we exercise, all about improving the body to improve the self. Um, So again, that's an ethical norm. Ethical norms are norms that we believe will deliver the goods of the good life. So if you think about um, other value frameworks, so an Aristotelian value framework or a Christian value framework or a military value framework. So for Aristotle, you've got to find your virtue in the middle. For a Christian, you've got to be uh, true to your God and um, honest about how you behave and good to your neighbour. For the military framework, you've got to be honourable, believe in fair play and, you know, treat your men justly. Um, All of these are value frameworks that determine how we live our lives. So for those who've bought the beauty ideal, It's about attaining those values, the values of the body beautiful, and that's determining what you do in your daily practice and in your long-term goals. So think about New Year's resolutions. These are the things we really want. This is what we value. This is how we're shaping our lives. And how have we gotten so confused that we think that how we look is going to make us happy and that that's going to help us to achieve a flourishing life? So for those who believe that, It seems obvious that that's true. And if you look at some of the things that young girls say, they say things like, oh, if only I was a size 10, I wouldn't worry about having straight A's. So once you fall under a value framework, it doesn't look odd at all. So on the outside, you might think a military framework is crazy or a particularly religious framework is crazy. But when you're in that value framework, that is your ethical ideal. That is your value framework. So when people say to me, as as they often do, particularly philosophers, oh, but you know, what you're talking about isn't a value framework at all. It's just a a confused way of living. It's like, well, what is a value framework then? What you mean is you don't agree with those values or you think those values are the wrong ones. But that does nothing to change the fact that for those who fall under this, it is functioning as a value framework just as any other value framework functions. So we can critique the values and think that, well, no, then that's not a good value framework. But that's different from saying it's not a value framework. So in terms of, of how we've come here, it's really hard to track because one of the reasons that it's sort of sprung up upon us without us 
tracking it well is because as academics, we haven't taken it very seriously. So there is a trajectory that you can see. Some of it's about um, living in a more visual culture. Some of it is about the technological imperative. We can do a lot more to our bodies now than we ever could in the past. Some of it is about how we're doing consumption. And some of it is this global nature that only a global ideal can naturalise and normalise and make things required that previously were just about beauty. They become about health, they become about hygiene, and suddenly everybody has to do more to be normal. So it seems as if if we're trying to be more virtuous, that if we're trying to be more compassionate, that can actually pay off. We can actually feel more satisfied and happier in our lives. I'm not sure if that seems to be working with the increased pressure of the beauty ideals. It seems to me that if we were trying to achieve a more virtuous lifestyle and be more generous or compassionate, that this can actually pay off in terms of us feeling happier and achieving the goods of a good life. But with the beauty imperatives, that this doesn't seem to be paying off in the same way. Like the increased pressure of achieving that goal doesn't seem to satisfy us. We then want to be even skinnier or even fitter. Uh, So are we mistaken in pursuing these goals in order to try and be happy? Ultimately, we're mistaken. We all sag, wrinkle and die. But it's not the case that engaging in beauty has no benefits or doesn't give any satisfaction. So if you go back to being virtuous, you know, and that making you happier, well, the jury's still out on whether being virtuous makes one happier. I mean, you know, we know, sadly, that those who bully at school, they don't end up suffering. (laughs) They end up better off. So with every value framework, there are arguments about whether it works or not. So I think the, the beauty ideal is probably, as value frameworks go, one that doesn't deliver and certainly doesn't deliver as much as we believe it will. Um, so if you look at some of the data, um, there are advantages to being more beautiful um, in terms of you know some um, economic advantage in earning a little bit more or uh, being treated better when it comes to first callbacks for interviews, but they're much less than people imagine. It might get you um, through the door, but it won't deliver. And if you're, if the job you want is you know, a lawyer or a doctor, it makes absolutely no difference how you look. If you don't have those qualifications, you will not get the job. So some of it is a myth that's built up, but some of it is not. There are real benefits to beauty engagement and not just of the instrumental kind. There are lifestyle benefits. So sometimes the only adult to adult touch that is not sexual and not medical is the beauty touch. So if you think about somebody in the care home, for instance, that hairdresser's touch, that's a really positive touch. Lots of beauty talk is friendship talk. So, you know, you might compliment somebody on what they're wearing when really you're just saying, oh, hi, I like you. Um, Hi, I want to tell you how much I like you. Um, or, Or we do things we shop together, mothers do their daughter's hair. There's so much that's positive about beauty. So it's not all all bad. There are lots of bad things in, in the way the trajectory is going. And if we continue towards ever more modified bodies with ever more pressure, then there'll be more bad than good. But my, my last chapter of Perfect Me is beauty without the beast. And what we need to do is reclaim the positive because we do want to be embodied beings. We do want to care about the flesh and, and, and how we look and how we interact with real human beings, which is always going to be partly about the body. I think that that's a, a really good point. Um, but let's go back and focus for a minute on especially how there seems to be more pressure on women and, and the risky behaviours associated with this. And in some roles, I, th- I feel as if being attractive or subscribing to some of those beauty ideals can actually work against you. So we're obviously working in academia and in philosophy, which is very male dominated in particular. And it seems as if when we care about our appearance or we want to look good, that sometimes that's associated with being less intelligent. So 
when we look at the Netflix um, recent TV show, The Chair, you see this embodiment of female academics, particularly from ethnic minorities, dressing in a very sort of masculine way has been the critique, uh, sort of not wanting to show off their figure too much, wanting to fit in. And the critique there is that's because academia is actually a very masculine space. And in order to be taken seriously, you almost have to embody more of the masculine traits. What are your thoughts on this? There's some truth in that, and certainly it has been like that. I think it's less true now when you look at some of the uh, early career um, young women and young men who are increasingly less buying into that that culture. But one of the reasons that there's been so little research in this area, I think, is exactly that, is that, oh, you know, academics, particularly philosophers, we're not supposed to care about our bodies because that somehow makes us like less clever, the life of the mind. It's also very gatekeeping. Um, it's a way of keeping people who are not like you out, as it were. And there's so much that's about race, class, sexual hierarchies there. So one of the reasons I'm very critical of just saying our oh, individuals just should not do this or that this is a simple choice is that usually people who don't do that are within a very privileged community. So it's easy for academic, particularly philosophy women, not to wear makeup. Indeed, as you say, you know, when you do it, somehow you might be seen as not as clever, but that's failing to recognise that that's part of a very particular community. If you're a bar worker right, or a retail worker, that's not even a live option for you. Um, so beauty choices are nearly always about context, they're about community, they're about social norms, they're very rarely about individuals. And part of the reason we've been so poor as academics in helping people address what is an epidemic of body image anxiety, and as you say, rising pressure to be normal, is because we don't recognise it. And worse, we trivialise it and dismiss it. Whereas in fact, I, you know, I'm a I'm an applied ethicist. I'm a scholar of justice. I spent 15 years of, of my life before I turned to beauty working on global ethics. So issues about women's rights, genetic ethics, trafficking of organs, these kind of what perceived as super serious issues. When I turned to beauty, people were like, why are you doing that? That's really trivial. It's like, no, this is a matter of justice, right? We see the poorest women in the world swapping their retrovirals for skin lightening cream. And we see the richest women in the world spending all they can pursuing this ideal of the body beautiful. And we see young women and girls absolutely not doing the things that they would do to make them succeed they you know they, they won't do physical exercise they're too scared to put their hands up in school they don't want to go out because they don't look right and then they're taking hours posting the right selfies doing the makeup getting the filter getting the angles right posting waiting for lights and then being destroyed if they don't get them how is this not a matter of justice I think this is a really important point about where we're looking to address the justice in this, but also the question of where should we lay the blame? If you're definitely saying that we shouldn't be blaming the individuals who are trying their best here, where can we look to redress some of these issues of inequality? Absolutely. It's not about individual choice. It's a totally rational response to an overwhelming ideal to engage. Uh, and those who don't engage are usually within a privileged position. If you don't fall under the beauty ideal and you don't feel the pressure, then don't feel smug about it. Just feel very, very lucky. Because actually, for many people, it is overwhelming. And that is the message that is constantly being delivered by our beauty culture. So what we need to do is push back against the culture. It's not enough to tell individuals it's up to you to resist. 
how can an individual resist an overwhelming social norm? It's up to us to think about how can we change the culture so that that pressure is reduced? And one of the things that I've been working on um, over the last few years is thinking about lookism more seriously. So lookism as appearance discrimination and how we could change how we think about it and talk about it. So it's not very long ago that um, sexism was just rampant. So if you think about mad men, you know, having one's bum pinched or being catcalled, you know, that was just normal. And well, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you complaining? We, we, we're trying to compliment you. It's like, no, you're not. And now we would not put up with that. So I'm not saying sexism's gone away, but you cannot make those horrifically overt sexist comments in the workplace uh, or in very many other places because you will be called out for sexism. Well, we need to do that complete shift with lookism too. Before we named sexism, you might have not liked it. You might have been uncomfortable, but you couldn't call it out. With lookism, we need to say it's never okay to make negative comments about other people's bodies, no matter why you do it. Body shaming is always people shaming. It's never helpful. And we need to move the shame from the person who's ashamed when they get the comment to the person who makes the comment. And if we just saw lookism as we see sexism as unacceptable behaviour, culture change, especially in a really virtual world of social media, could happen really, really quickly. This is The Philosopher's Zone, where this week Laura Delimpio is speaking with Heather Widows, who's the author of Perfect Me, Beauty as an Ethical Ideal. It's a great book. It explores how lookism is becoming more dominant and more demanding and more damaging than ever before. I can think of two recent examples where actors have started to call out lookism. And as you say, maybe they haven't got the term for it yet. But Jonah Hill in October 2021 on Instagram said, I know you mean well, but I kindly ask that you not comment on my body. Good or bad, I want to politely let you know that it's not helpful and doesn't feel good. Much respect. And then more recently, Derry Girls and Bridgerton star Nicola Coolan also posted to Instagram, if you have an opinion about my body, please don't share it with me. Most people are being nice and not trying to be offensive, but I'm just one real life human being and it's really hard to take the weight of thousands of opinions on how you look being sent directly to you every day. Do you think these kinds of comments can start to help with awareness of lookism? I really hope so. And if there's any celebrities listening that want to help, there's an everyday lookism project, which one endorsement could make go crazy, built on the everyday sexism, where people share their comments of body shaming. And what's really obvious from the body shaming stories is you cannot get it right. There are body shaming stories where people are told they're too fat, they're too thin, they wear too much makeup, not enough makeup. They've obsessed too much about their hair. They haven't taken care of themselves. They've let themselves go. There is no winning in this. Sharing those everyday lookism stories, each one is a moment where somebody's felt ashamed. When you put them together, it's a massive pushback against body shaming. And if we could all stop making comments, especially negative comments, but any comments about other people's bodies, we would suddenly roll back the pressure a little bit. It wouldn't mean that we'd stop caring. It wouldn't mean we wouldn't see those images, but we would at least not be afraid that that would be called out and that extra element of vulnerability would happen to us. I've been working with some anti-bullying charities. Appearance bullying is the most prevalent form of bullying in schools, and yet it's the one we do less about. And one of the reasons we do less about it is it's not a protected characteristic. We haven't named it and we think it's normal. 
doesn't have to be normal. Sexism is a great example. So is racism, right? We used to think that racism was normal. We don't accept that now. Simply because there's a lot of it doesn't mean it's okay. And we could really change that and we could change that really fast. Marshall McLuhan says, photography turns people into things and their image into a mass consumer product. Isn't there a strong commercial or capitalistic driving force to all of this? Obviously, you're saying that there's an ethical value that's at play here, but I wonder if it's going to be quite hard to resist that ethical norm when there is a very strong market force driver. The nature of the market is certainly increasing the pressure, but we can only be sold things that we want to consume. So the value framework in a way comes first. So because we value bodies... What we're buying is skin cream, injectables, cosmetic surgery. Uh, If we valued our intellect, we'd be buying mind-enhancing drugs, not body cream. So, of course, capitalism makes flaws to then exploit those flaws. So some of the things that we're being sold are to exploit flaws that we didn't know we had a generation ago, like cellulite cream or cream to reduce large pores. But if we didn't value our face and our bodies, those couldn't be sold to us. So how we do consumption is one piece of the puzzle, but what we're consuming has changed. So if you look at some of the fashion magazines, you know, fashion editors will tell you 10, 20 years ago when they were interviewing celebrities to show how um, successful the person was, you'd see things like, you know, their house or their husband or their kids, right? And that will be part of the magazine. Now it's become all about the body. So the good mother is symbolised by getting back her prepartum body, not by doing things with her child. So fashion and beauty are slightly coming apart. So when I talk about not making negative comments about bodies, I'm not saying that we we don't forget. We forget that we're embodied beings. Philosophers have been really good at forgetting we're embodied beings. And the ghost in the machine or the brain in the jar, right, that's the worst model of human being than bodies themselves. So we mustn't forget that we're bodies and that we're embodied and that we communicate through our bodies and There's a sense in which, yes, we need to not make negative comments about people's bodies, not comment on bodies at all. But that doesn't mean you can't say, oh, I love your top. That's friendship talk. It might actually have nothing to do with the top. So consumerism is a part of the puzzle, but we can only be sold what we already want. It's not the whole piece of the puzzle. And increasingly, we're buying less it bags or cars and we're moving from the cut of the dress to the cut of the breast and if you think about how fashion works that doesn't really help fashion because they want us to buy different clothes every you know four months every season if what we're becoming obsessed with is the body and if you look at some of the uh, contoured clothings or the clothing that you see in with you know the Kardashians this is clothing that's not really about the clothes it's all about the body so there's something changing there so even part of what we think of as the uh, beauty fashion commercial arm isn't really benefiting from some of this and I think there might be some real allies in some of those fashion celebrity industries about what would true diversity look like what if we thought about not just removing one feature of the ideal so one of the reasons I'm quite critical about body positivity campaigns is that they're all about the body they're all about posting images and usually they only challenge one feature of the ideal so those 
campaigns that challenge the smooth feature of the ideal will encourage people to grow body hair, like the Janya Hairy campaign. But the fact that, you know, you can get sponsored for it already tells you that you're making a, a kind of political or moral choice rather than it just being a simple choice. You know, all fat acceptance campaigns, often uh, the person will otherwise be very firm, be very curvy in the right places and often be exceptionally made up, almost like doing a fashion shoot. So what these campaigns do is they claim that they're pushing back, but they're really they're they're really strengthening the ideal because they're really showing that the body matters and they're saying okay you can not have quite all the features but as long as you've got enough of the others so there's a sense in which that anything that focuses wholly on the body um, and in that very kind of overtly visual way so to come back to your quote about images always objectifying well there's a sense in which that's true but it's a bit of a banal sense in a visual culture because how do we move out of that visual culture that image are absolutely everywhere and really interestingly um, cosmetic surgeons are reporting that people are coming to them less with pictures of celebrities which is what they used to do and more with pictures of their own doctored selfies for how they want to look. This is really interesting because one of the other quotes that Marshall McLuhan is, is saying is that to say that the camera cannot lie is merely to underline the multiple deceits that are now practiced in its name. I mean, the camera does lie and increasingly the technology we can use to replace those risky behaviours. And I was wondering in the wake of the pandemic where we were behind a screen and we could apply a filter. I know so many people who didn't put on makeup in the morning, but instead put on the makeup filter. So it just looked like they had some lipstick on when they were in a Zoom meeting. Why can't we not be endeavouring to perform the risky behaviours in real life, IRL, and instead use some of the filters and the technology to replace that for us? We have in, in lockdown. What's interesting is we come out of lockdown and people see our real faces again. How how do we manage that dissonance between they've been looking at this Zoom face? And again, fascinating is cosmetic surgeons are also reporting that middle-aged men for the first time are going and asking for lots of injectables and skin treatments. And we can only presume that what they've been doing is looking at themselves on Zoom. They probably didn't work out how to use the filters to put on their makeup. So they're probably looking at their real faces on Zoom and they're suddenly... Um, thinking they've got all kinds of flaws that they probably would never have even thought about if they had not gone into lockdown, not used the virtual technology and and simply been in meetings where they they looked at themselves for a few minutes in the morning on their way out and perhaps not again. They now are getting touch up. So we're seeing this spread across demographics. So the technology works in in so many different ways. And again, it's really complicated and we we do need, you know, take it seriously, do more work on it because The filters do allow us to change how we present and we all know that they're false, right? Nobody looks like their their Instagram feed. Um, Not even the most beautiful celebrity in the world looks like their Instagram feed. And we all know that, but it doesn't mean that we don't feel very affected by the images. When you see those beautiful images, you feel worse about your own body. And it seems like that might be true even when it's our own doctored selfie. So there's some really strange things going on about how we move into a visual culture and how that changes how we see ourselves and what we can know. It's like it almost like it bypasses all of the things that our brain is telling us. The image just speaks so much louder than the word. I think that's a really important point. And this cognitive dissonance between us recognising that these images are fake, that people have used all the filters. I mean, there's a lot of more uh, comedians and social media influencers who are becoming very famous for presenting the doctored image 
next to the outtakes and showing that in the ordinary photos, they look just like you and me. But in the image where they've got the filters and the touch-ups, they look incredible. And yet we know that this isn't real. And as you're saying, it's still affecting us. So why is that? Why are we not allowing the knowledge that this is fake (laughs) to overcome the emotional feeling of feeling bad that we can't live up to something that is clearly unattainable? We don't know. We've never lived in a culture like this before. Our phones are attached to our hands now. They're, they're almost pieces of our bodies. When you leave your phone at home, you feel like you've, you've left something of yourself behind. Well, what does that mean? And I think as, as, as academics, we really haven't taken this seriously enough. We need to understand that so much better because the image clearly does speak so much louder than the word. So um, really interestingly, so me and a few other people, we campaigned to have labels put on magazine pictures when images have been doctored and our thoughts were that all this would help people not feel you know so inadequate because they'd be told that the image was doctored and think oh that's okay that's fine but the opposite happened so what happens is if you put a label on on something and you say this model's legs have been lengthened and the cellulite's been removed instead of thinking oh my um, bumpy wobbly legs they're, they're okay then you actually give more attention to the model's legs. So you feel worse about your own legs, despite the knowing. So it's something about how images cut through some of that stuff and they speak maybe emotionally, maybe ethically, maybe one of the reasons that that the bodies of cells has crept in and is now so hard for people to imagine not having those value systems is because perhaps it's done it. It's not about a conversion experience. It's not about a belief. It's just about, well, this is how it is. So the value framework has kind of sneaked underneath. So in Perfect Me, I talk about the beauty ideal as a stealthy ideal. And I think that that sort of sums up in a way how we found ourselves in a, in a position where two generations ago, they couldn't have imagined that the outside would have been saying things about who they are. Character was about the inside, about you know being more truthful, being kinder, being a better mother, being a uh, you know a more um, attentive daughter, etc. All about the inside, who we were on the inside. Now we've moved to the outside, and that's a phenomenal, almost unimaginable shift. And yet it's happened almost without us noticing it. So what can we do about this? Is there some sort of educative aspects that we can connect to? Is there something about policies that should be put in place or even the social media, the app companies, that they should be restricted in certain ways? There's loads that we can do. And thankfully, policymakers are really taking this seriously. Um, I was at Westminster only a few weeks ago uh, talking to a health committee about body image, mental health and physical health. Um, This is one where the policymakers have run ahead of the academics and and as academics we should be ashamed of the fact that we have not taken this seriously. Usually we're the canaries in the mine going, hang on guys, look this is changing and we have really failed here. But the policymakers are stepping up. They do have an epidemic of body image anxiety and they can see that. We've got rising eating disorders. We've got all kinds of um, terrible consequences happening. So the policymakers are already moving. So one of the first things we could do is make this a public health issue. Uh, Stop thinking about it as an individual issue. It's not up to individuals to get this right. It's about us to make culture 
where it's much easier for us to get this right. There's definitely things that social media campaigns could do. What if we did real diversity? What if we did hairy bodies, old bodies, aging bodies? When you look at the images, they're all so similar. So there's all kinds of things we can do in in teaching our kids, but we shouldn't be just teaching them resilience or resistance. We need to take the pressure off individuals. Let's not worry about what individuals do or don't do. Let's not focus on that at all. All that does is put more focus on bodies. Let's take the focus off bodies. Let's put the focus out there on the culture and let's have a lot more solidarity. If we stop judging ourselves and others as much, we'll find it easier to do collective activism and change this together. Heather Widows, Professor of Global Ethics at the University of Birmingham in the UK. She's the author of Perfect Me, Beauty as an Ethical Ideal, and she was speaking there with Laura Delimpio, who is also at the University of Birmingham. Laura is Associate Professor of Philosophy of Education. And if you'd like to hear more about the beauty ideal and the tight grip that it has on our culture, for better or worse, RN Presents is currently hosting a new podcast series called Face Value, which explores the risks and realities of cosmetic enhancement. It's a really interesting series, and we're going to put a link on the Philosopher's Zone website, or you can get to Face Value via the ABC Listen app. And that's it from the Philosopher's Zone for another week. You can also find us via the ABC Listen app, and you can find me, David Rutledge, on Twitter at David P. Zone. Bye for now. Listener.